and welcome to the Pack Heavy podcast. Now this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market. Featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision. I call this mindset the Pack Heavy mentality and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organization. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organize the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. Good morning, and welcome to episode 65, where today I have Roger LaRochelle, who is the principal consultant at RLL Consulting. Now, if you have ever completed or are about to prepare your packaging for the retail shelf, I'm sure that you would agree that the provincial and federal labelling requirements and acts can be a daunting task and a maze to sift through. So it's been on my mind to have a discussion with an industry expert in this field, and I was really excited when I was introduced to Roger so that I could specifically have this discussion today. Now, Roger helps food processors and restaurant owners develop and prepare their products for success on the retail shelf with a primary focus on nutrition facts, ingredients lists, barcodes, federal compliance and labeling standards, and strong labeling copy. So essentially everything that you need to get the full lay of the land on the packaging and labeling requirements for the North American market. As usual, before we kick off in today's conversation with Roger though, just a quick mention about show sponsor Food Pack. It's important to remember that your packaging is the first and most meaningful interaction that your consumer will have with your product. And there is so much that you need to get right from the emotional experience of the brand that you've developed, the messaging that you choose, the images that you show, right through to the bag type, features, finish and feel. Now at Foodpack, we work exclusively on what your vision and needs are in this space and work really hard to deliver a package that serves its purpose properly by protecting the integrity of your product and shelf life expectation and performs exactly how you intend in the hands of your consumer. So if you're looking to get into the market for the first time or would like me to assess your existing packaging and program, head along down into the show notes and click on the link of our website. You'll find so much information there. And if you feel so inclined, feel free to get in touch with me directly by emailing me at hayden at foodpack.ca or by calling me on my work cell, which is 604-360-6790. Roger, welcome to the show. Hey, Hayden. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries, mate. How's your week traveling? Uh, it's, it's been fine. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. So you're a consultant and you're out on the road. I'd imagine just having as many conversations as you can. What does your typical week look like? Uh, I spent, a, I spent a fair amount of time at my desk, uh, working on copy, working on, uh, calculations and, uh, just trying to make sure that, that I'm fully understanding, uh, needs of my clients and, yeah. uh, and then, and then some project management, uh, as well, you know, sometimes herding cats a little bit and, yeah. uh, connecting designers with brand holders, uh, and, and making sure that, you know, copy is accurate and yeah. doing some editing and proofing. So a little bit of time on the road and a little bit of time, uh, more, most time at my desk. Yeah, nice. And you're a Vancouver boy as well? I live in Langley now. Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Born and raised in Langley? Or? No, no. I was, I was born out east, raised yeah. uh, in the prairies, and, yeah. but I've been on the coast since 93 now. So, right, right. so I consider myself a, a West Coast person now. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you've got a formal culinary um, background, I see, I and you've worked yeah. in a few restaurants as a, an executive chef and so on. That's right. Is the, where you grew up out East, did that have an influence on your, um, did that have an impact on you? Uh, my culinary influence 
definitely comes from my mother. Uh, she was and is, uh, you know, a, a quote unquote foodie. Uh, yeah. she always has been very passionate about food. I, my, my family is entirely French Canadian. And so any gathering uh, and uh, a lot of conversations surround food and so that's right. just how I grew up and yeah. um you know my my mother uh always believed in the kids helping out so mm -hmm. at at an age where my sister and I were able to peel carrots we were peeling carrots uh yeah. she always had a garden uh and so when we were old enough to pick weeds we picked weeds we picking weeds <laughs> yeah <laughs> So it's That's just, awesome. yeah, so it's just yeah. always been a part of my life. And as I yeah. got older and, and finished up with high school, it, it just kind of seemed like a, a good fit. And yeah. I enjoyed working in restaurants. I, I enjoyed yeah. the people that I worked with, uh, yeah. you know, always had a lot of fun. And so just, yeah. just kept going uh, on that path. Yeah, nice. And um, was it in 93 that you came out here? Was that because of culinary training or? No, it wasn't. Uh, that was for other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had a young son. Uh, right. he yep. was, uh, almost a year old and, mm -hmm. um, just wanted a life for him, uh, that, that Vancouver could bring, yeah. um, yep. and, as opposed to sort of growing up in small towns, uh, yeah. as I had. Yeah. yeah so yeah. that was sort of yeah, the impetus yeah. and then, yeah. and then things worked out and we stayed and, uh, yeah. things just grew from there. So. That's beautiful, mate. Yeah. What a stunning place to raise a child. Like the West coast of Canada is unreal, especially like when you dig into the islands and, you know. Yeah, endless opportunities. Yeah, absolutely, and and and, and culturally as well. Uh, yeah. you know, it was a lot. It's a lot less homogenous, say, than mm -hmm. than the prairies are. So, you know, so we really wanted him to be exposed to other people and other languages, yeah. and um, yeah. and that sort of thing too. So it was great. Oh, awesome, mate. And when you started in the hospitality industry, did you start in the front of house, or did you naturally go to the back of the house? Always in the back of the house. Yeah, I, yeah, where all the fun is. Yeah, and I just don't have the. I have the temperament now to deal with the public a little bit better than I did when <laughs> I was in my early twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just uh, so I was just more suited to that. Yeah, that. yeah. I was the opposite. I grew up in my parents' business and uh, started in the back. Actually, I should say I was the same as you. I started in the back in the dish pit, moved my way onto the grill, flipping burgers, but then I progressed out onto the front um, counter. And uh, that was awesome. And then when I started working in restaurants, when I moved to Melbourne, um, you know, I was managing cafes. And uh, and then from there, I was, yeah, waiting on tables, working behind a bar, loved it. And then I thought, you know what, I've got to potentially move out into the back because I thought that a chef was something, being a chef was something that I'd be interested in as well. And, you know, worked a few shifts, put my hand up to do some um some extra time in out the back and, you know, prep some mirepoir and all of that kind of stuff. And it was awesome. Loved it, but it just never turned into anything for me. And, you know, I ended up sticking out the front, which was awesome because I didn't mind the tips either. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two different personality types. I think, you know, yeah, I just, sure. uh, the, I've always respected people that can have the nod and smile and do their jobs and, and keep yeah. the face. Uh, Cause some people come into restaurants are just not yeah. pleasant. Yeah. And uh, I, I struggled with that a little too much. Yeah, mate. Yeah. It's hard to keep a smile on your face all the time, but sometimes you just got to paint it on. Yeah. <laughs> mate, so you are the principal consultant at RLL Consulting and you launched in August 2020. So tell us all about the birth of that business. So um, it, it really, it was, again, it was an extension to the work I'd been doing previously. Uh, you know, with my work as a production manager with spud.ca, um, mm. I found myself working with a lot of uh, uh, small vendors who 
didn't really understand how to properly label products, how to get UPC codes, how mm-hmm. to, to, to get nutrition facts onto their labels so that they could be sold with a retailer like, like Spud. And mm-hmm. um, I had that skill set uh, already from, from my work previous to that. And uh, I, I started really enjoying the math and the puzzle part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and putting it together a little bit more, I think, than I enjoyed cooking or coming yep. up with recipes myself. Yep. And so um, I enjoyed that it kind of relieved some of the creative pressure that a uh, chef is under kind of all the time mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and became a little bit more of a mathematical operation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, so I, and so I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, and then as, uh, as COVID sort of, you know, became obvious that it was going to be a, a, a longer proposition than sort of we thought that spring, mm-hmm. um, it just became apparent that there was going to be more and more need for that. Uh, mm-hmm. Restaurants were struggling to keep staff employed uh, and needed a, another revenue stream because, yep. you know, take out and um you know uh using skip the dishes or uber eats mm. it just cuts into that profit margin yeah so aggressively yep. that yeah. that retail was was kind of a natural uh avenue uh yep. and then through those conversations realizing like, boy a lot of people want to do retail uh a mm. lot of people should do retail um mm. but don't know how and and the the common conversation that I had was was folks telling me like we'd love to sell our products at Spud we'd love to sell our products at the beef store we just don't know how and we don't mm-hmm. know where to start yeah and so that's when I you know around that time I decided okay well I, I will show you and mm. there there's sort of um uh, there's a process and it starts here and 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 this is the goal where you, where you need to end up and yep. these are the decisions that need to be made <clears throat> along the way between concept and now your products are on the shelves. Yeah, that's perfect, mate. And I'm so glad that we're having this conversation today because here at Food Pack, um, you know, we have absolutely noticed the uptick in exactly what you're discussing. So, you know, people extending out onto the retail shelf to generate some extra revenue, as you were suggesting, you know, putting their soups and stews and, you know, um, cake batters and whatever it may be into a stand-up pouch. And they want to present beautifully out there, but they also need to meet all of the criteria um, to get out onto the retail shelf. So I guess today's conversation, I would love to sort of play a bit of a scenario with you whereby, say, for example, a restaurant owner or operator wants to bring a hugely popular product onto the retail shelf shelf so for example like i just mentioned like a soup or a pizza base for example so you know when somebody like that comes to you where do you typically start the discussion you know when you're talking about labeling or how do you even approach a discussion like that uh yeah well it starts with a a list of products and the format that works best for that for that restaurant Mm -hmm. so you know do they have the capability to package in in the stand-up pouches like you say not not all products fit well in there or Absolutely. They don't pour or, yeah. or whatever. Um, and, and the format, do they have the room and the capability to properly freeze and store, mm-hmm. for example? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is there a shelf life consideration that, that needs to be taken in there, say, with the fresh product? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of pounding through those details. And then, and then it becomes a lot more uh, uh, systematic. It starts with the recipe. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, examining that and and seeing 
um, you know, where things are going to land, nutritionally speaking. Mm. Uh, it probably won't surprise too many people that, uh, you know, chefs cook with their eyes and their mouths and their, and their stomachs, you know, yep. uh, salty fatty acid is, is mm -hmm. delicious on the plate in a restaurant. Uh, but that can often translate into very high fat values. It can translate to very high sodium values, which don't always work as retail products. Yeah, um, that's right. a, a lot of, a lot of consumers in the grocery store, do turn that box over and they do look to see what the nutritional values are. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and often that purchase decision gets made there. Mm. Yeah. And I guess that's one question as well, because, you know, as a chef is creating something for the plate, you know, obviously it tastes delicious, but they may not be cooking in batches that are scalable. So is that part of the conversation as well? Like being able to scale a product uh, so that they can produce enough to put on the retail shelf too? Yeah. So, so part of the, the, examination of their recipe is, is breaking it down into its components. Yeah. So whether that's a work in progress or a spice blend that gets produced, yeah. um, you know, e even factoring a yield into your cooking, but also, mm -hmm. you know, your, your produce handling, uh, you know, the skins that come off of the onions and, and that yeah. sort of thing. And yeah. so once that's been examined, everything can get broken down into a percentage based system. Mm -hmm. And once you've got your percentage-based system, now you can kind of do all the rest of the work. So now you can calculate your nutrition facts based on the package size and the serving size mm -hmm. that, that you're going to be telling consumers about. Mm -hmm. But you can also use that same math to scale your recipe. So once you're, once you're operating with percentages, well, now you can make pretty much any batch size that, mm -hmm. that you'd like or that, yeah. that your pot you know, happens to fit. Yeah. yeah, which which is quite a bit different than the way most restaurants operate. Uh, yeah. Most restaurants operate on on a fixed batch system. Every, yeah. every time you make the salad dressing, you're making 12 liters of it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that doesn't always work when now a customer wants 25 cases of it. Well, yeah. do you go back and do you multiply the four tablespoons by... 200 so that you yeah. can you know yeah. so so it, it doesn't really function very well like that yeah. but once you've yeah. broken down everything into a percentage-based system people mm -hmm. start using metric weights a lot a lot yeah. more uh which yeah. is always more accurate and always easier to work with uh, mm -hmm. then that then that scaling um can happen a lot more easily Got you. So obviously, you know, there are compliances that everybody needs to be aware of. So with the Canadian food labeling requirements of regulations uh, and also the FDR as well. So what are the major things that business owners need to be aware of or, you know, what are the tripping hazards there? Okay, so <laughs> Inspection Canada has a website. I'd love to say yep. I'd love to say it's a great website, um, but there's just so much information on there. It can be difficult to navigate. Yeah. Uh, but the landing page that you come to when it comes to labels shows you all of the elements of the label that need to be on there. And right. then for each of those elements, um, then it gets broken down into sort of more specific uh, legislation uh, mm -hmm. that relates to the type of product, where you're going to be selling it. Uh, mm -hmm. So where your market is, uh, you know, how, how far from the principal or from the manufacturing, from the production facility, do you yeah. intend to sell? Yeah. Rules are, are different for uh, someone selling product at uh, a farmer's market within the city that they're manufacturing in versus mm -hmm. shipping product out of province or yeah. across federal borders. So, right. so, so that, that's a big part of it. 
Um, and then there is sort of an interactive tool that you can go through that that shows you, look, you need your uh, uh, you need your nutrition facts, you need your yeah. ingredients, you need yeah. your allergens declared, uh, you need a principal place of business, you need a way for people to contact you, yeah. uh, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, as it, as as it goes down the list. Right. Um, and then there are considerations for the retailer as well that you potentially want to sell with. Mm. Um, you know, it's always a good idea to have a UPC uh, barcode on your product, yeah. but not everyone yeah. requires that. Mm-hmm. Back to that um, uh, farmer's market example, you don't mm-hmm. need barcodes to sell products in farmer's market. So yeah. so the approach that I take is I get as close to the CFIA uh, compliance as I can and just check mark everything that's on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, because uh, uh, I figure it's a lot easier to just do it right the first time and, yeah. and open as many doors as you can. That's awesome. The, so once, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. And yeah. I was going to say, you know, the, the, the sort of overarching principle uh, that, that, you know, the CFIA wants to see, they, they can't inspect every label that people make. They can't, mm-hmm. they can't, you know, react to every poorly designed label, but yeah. what they will react to is information that poses a health threat. So mm-hmm. undeclared allergens is, mm. is something that you see commonly um, as, as a, a reason for a product recall right. um, and, and, um, and misleading information. Uh, mm. making claims on there that are just factually untrue or not supported by other information like nutrition facts. So, mm. you know, for example, telling someone that a product is low in fat when in fact there's 25 grams of fat preserving. So, yeah, yeah. and then that's where the Inspection Canada website comes in handy because you can dig in and you can look and you can say, well, how low in fat does my product actually have to be before I claim. can say it's low and yeah. yeah, yeah, got you. That's okay. Now, talking about the barcodes, what how do you actually source and register a barcode? Like, what's the process there? So, I've discovered in the past year or so that there are people that resell uh, barcodes. Uh, and right. and if and if if one were to uh, do a Google search for how do I get barcodes, I think the last time I did that, the first six or so uh, hits were ads for people reselling barcodes. It's not the way for people to do it. Um, There is a, uh, uh, they're not a company. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a body here in Canada called gs1ca.org and Mm -hmm. they manage barcodes. So it Mm -hmm. works on a subscription based service. There's a few different packages. I think maybe five different size packages. You pay, you pay an annual subscription fee based on the size of that package. And then you're either assigned, uh, some, uh, G tins they're called now, uh, what, what we've always referred to as UPC, Mm -hmm. um, and they'll either assign that to you and then now that is your code to use and they will not reassign that to to anybody else mm-hmm. um there's another option where they will assign a prefix which varies in the number of digits usually six to nine digits or so um and then the uh then the uh, brand holder themselves will assign the remaining digits based on usually, you know, an internal system um, to determine the, the rest of those digits. 
Got you. Okay, so it's not as daunting as what people make it out to be. Eh? It's it's pretty straightforward once you understand yeah. the rules. I, t- I tell yeah. everyone, go go to GS1 CA. Don't buy any codes uh, from resellers. Um, it it has and does cause problems because yeah. uh, as as the online selling world becomes greater and greater mm-hmm. uh, and and has you know more influence and more impact on our lives uh, the chance of duplicate codes uh, being used start starts to exist mm. and so using someone like gs1 ca uh, you are you're you're guaranteed that they won't assign anyone else your prefix or yeah. your barcodes yeah. um, will someone else you know, use it, it's impossible to stop it. But yeah. at least if you're registered with gs1ca.org, you can prove that that code belongs to you. Yeah, there's some traceability behind there's some it. traceability, yeah. Got you. Now, I guess the other thing that needs to be navigated here in Canada, probably more than anywhere else, is the bilingual aspect on packaging. Mm-hmm. So what do we need to know about that? So again, it, it sort of depends on the region that you're selling. Um, and there are some exemptions for, uh, available display area, uh, mm-hmm. certain very small packages aren't, aren't mandated to have French on there because right. there just wouldn't be the space for it. Like samples, for example, samples. Yeah. And there, there's, yeah. there's some other exceptions as well. There, there's sort of like specialty products or mm-hmm. there are test market products. Yeah. Um, so there, there are a handful of exemptions, uh, for bilingual, uh, the rule of thumb is if it can fit, you should put it on there. Um, again, back to that farmer's market example, mm. no one's going to recall your product because there's not French on your, mm-hmm. you know, onion jam that, that you're selling there. Yep. Um, but if you want to sell that, uh, if you're making it in, in Vancouver and you <laughs> want to sell that in Kelowna, it should have f- uh, French translations on it. Okay. Um, right. So if it's not local anymore and you are extending out there, that's when bilingual is more important than, yeah. than it would be. Yeah. Got you. And, and then on the other side uh, is that most retailers want as much compliance as you can have there on there as mm. well. Right. So, yeah. um, so there's that aspect of it. Even if you're making it in Vancouver, you're only selling it at retailers in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Some will be fine without it, uh, but a lot of them will ask you to, uh, to make sure that it's there. So when I, when I set things up uh, with my clients, I, it, for me, it's not even a question. I, I give the, uh, the translations. It's just, a, mm. it's just a part of what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what comes to mind straight away for me is that it's a real skill to incorporate all of the information that's required to meet all of the standards, including bilingual, like there's just so much information on a package. And to provide a package that looks amazing and is on brand, you know, there's so much that goes into it for a graphic designer or a design agency. So what do you think actually makes great packaging design? Uh, I'm definitely not the expert on on this one. Uh, yeah. I, I I try to stick to the copy uh, because the copy is objective, right? Mm. It's just, it's either right or it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the branding, when it comes to the sort of more marketing ele- elements, there are people out there that are just more knowledgeable about that than mm-hmm. I am. And they mm-hmm. can they can provide sort of empirical data as to why you should use this color. Mm-hmm. You know, who are you trying to sell this product to? What appeals yeah. to, to, to your market audience? And I, and I'm just, I just, 
I'm, I, I, I just have my own opinions about that kind yeah. of stuff and I can't back it up with any real sort of market research or, or, or mm -hmm. data. So I try to stay out of that uh, question as much as possible where, where I do like to get involved um, and where I will uh, stand up and, and speak is when people are trying to make claims that they shouldn't be making uh, when they're trying to provide uh, misleading information um, that's that's where I step in and and we'll sort of prove the case to leave this claim off of here because it's just not true. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, man. It sounds like you stick to your lane, which is pretty smart, I'd imagine. And well, and and you know, there's there's a difference between um, you know informing consumers and yeah. marketing, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And those two worlds can kind of have a, a gray area. Yeah. And so, you know, as far as Inspection Canada is concerned, your marketing needs are irrelevant. The, mm -hmm. the Inspection Canada wants to make sure that consumers are safe and that they have the information that they need to make an mm -hmm. informed purchase decision. Yeah. And and regardless of uh, whether someone thinks that they should declare salt as an ingredient in their food, mm. you have to. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, cons because consumers have a right to know if there is any of those ingredients in there. Yeah, no, totally, mate. Uh, hey, listen, we've gone down the list of everything that I had set aside for this conversation very efficiently. And I was just wondering, what else do we need to know here? Uh yeah, the, the world of, of retail is achievable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that the, the price of entry is generally uh, less than some people would expect. Mm. Um, mm. And that there are there are smart and organized ways of doing it. Uh, mm. and, and generally, you know, you, uh, when you're looking at cost, it's better off to do it right the first time yeah. uh, than to kind of take a stab at it yourself and realize that all of these printed pouches that you've just had shipped overseas have mm -hmm. spelling errors or mm -hmm. you've missed allergens or, you know, you've, you've not translated copy that you should have, right? So yeah. better to just sort of do that proofing step uh, before making those, those purchases. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've seen it before. Trust me. Actually, one we have a couple of layers of proofing in our process. So once we receive artwork, we spin back a digital proof for review. Gives people an opportunity to review all of the content from the top down. And you know, if they need to make changes in their artwork, they can you know lodge some new um, artwork for us to spin back another digital proof. Yeah. And then once they sign off on that, we also provide them with a physical proof. So if it's a digital um, uh, press proof, we provide them with a, a press proof, like I just suggested, which is actually um, the bag printed out onto the substrate that it'll be printed onto so either a matte or a gloss finish and it's a, a scale uh, image and it's full color and gives you a really good idea of what you're actually going to get um, if it's printed rotogravure once again it's very very similar to but it's printed onto gloss paper um, the major difference between rotogravure and digital is that rotogravure um, uses pantone um, spot colors because we're actually getting cylinders produced to um, to transfer the ink onto the substrate, whereas digital uses CMYK plus white. So um, it uses all of those colors to create the rainbow. So you are getting a different, um, a different proof uh, because obviously the paper proof is printed using CMYK, not Pantone, but it gives you a really good idea of what you're going to get. So yeah, it's another extra layer and it's really nice to actually see something in your hands to do a final sign off on as well. So yeah, yeah very, very important. And, yeah. and as many eyes on it, uh, as mm. you can get uh the yep. better 
the better. Yeah. Not that you can take everyone's opinions on there, but I mean, for me, I know that uh, I I get as many people proofing my copy as I can, because when, when you do six or eight, back to back, a human brain has a tendency to read or see what it thinks it wrote. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I find that even when I'm proofing my emails before I send them. uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, listen, mate, a couple of things. Um, When you're working with a client, typically, like, how long is this period for if you're going through from the starting conversation to actually wrapping up a project? Is this months or weeks? Or what does it typically look like? Yeah, I'd love to say that it was weeks, but typically Mm -hmm. it's months. There's a lot of information gathering that needs to happen. What what's what uh, some people sort of new to this world, um, you know, miss and sort of one of those tripping points that that you mentioned earlier Mm. is that they don't always have a full understanding of the ingredients that they're using in their products, um, you know, and 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 how that relates to any retailers that that they might want to sell Mm -hmm. with. So, again, to use spud.ca as an example. Uh, spud dossier doesn't allow any artificial preservatives or colors and and there's a whole laundry list of other ingredients that are sort of deemed as as dirty ingredients that are just not allowed on the platform Mm -hmm. and uh you know other other banners like whole foods do very similar things as well and so uh, one of the one of the things that i hear from us from uh clients is that well we make everything from scratch we don't use preservatives so everything is fine And then as you get into the recipe, well, I see you're using Dijon mustard in the salad dressing. Let Mm -hmm. me have, let me have a look at the ingredients in that Dijon mustard. And then sure enough, there are preservatives and or colors that are in there. Uh, And and at that point, it's not being done out of, you know, I know no one's trying to mislead and no one's trying to, to, you know, trick, but um, when you're doing your proper labeling, those ingredients need to be listed on there as well. Mm -hmm. And so there can be that process where, okay, I didn't realize that there was sodium and benzoate in this soy sauce I was using. No problem. Let's find you a clean label uh, soy sauce. Yep. And we'll replace that. And there may be some costing implications or usually is, uh, but there may be some flavor profiles that, that, that chef or brand holder wants to kind of review and make sure. So that part of the process can, can kind of take a a while. Mm. Um, And then you can get down and then, and then, so you gather all that information, you do the calculations like, Oh my God, there's 80% daily value sodium in this serving. Uh, No one, no one's going to buy that. So now we need to sort of do another revision on the recipe side of things. So that back and forth can happen. Um, And then, uh, and then there's the actual calculations themselves. Those generally happen fairly quickly for most Mm. products Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and then creating a label copy. And then that can take a little while as well, because, Mm. you know, uh, sizzle text or flavor copy can kind of go through a few hands, a few different iterations. uh, And then, and then once that's done, then a final translation for it. Um, Translation of English to French is not always a one-to-one. Yes. Um, and so making sure that it still reads properly in French and that that yeah. same message is being communicated. So that mm-hmm. can take a little bit of time. Uh, and then the designer needs to get involved and start doing the graphic design and the layout. And mm-hmm. that can go through some revisions. And then, yep. and then of course, any, any printing lead time um, that yep. needs to happen based on a ton of different factors. 
tons yeah i know and i'm so glad that you're sort of given some context there because at times we'll get approached by a um by somebody looking to get some bags printed i'm like hey where are you at with your artwork where you're at with your design and they may or may not have started and if they're at the end stages and they've got everything squared away and they're ready to just get everything laid out onto a diet line it can be quite a relatively quick process to getting a po lodge with a manufacturer whereas if they're like no i haven't even started like do you guys know a graphic designer that you can introduce us to and i'm like i absolutely can but then there are other layers to the conversation that need to be considered as well like as you suggested all of the nutritional values and making sure all of that squared away too so yeah lots of layers to this um to this program that people need to understand and yeah i think that if you set aside three to four months i think that a lot can be achieved in that period of time but yep. if you're thinking that this can be done in weeks i think it's a uh, it's a tall order uh, yeah you're you're absolutely right um yeah you know if i had to put a number to it you know for say five or six products uh, yeah. you know, two months between start to that file getting to, to someone like you, yeah. um, yeah. just, just to have, have that work done. And the other thing, yeah. the other thing too, that that's you know super obvious, but needs to be mentioned, restaurateurs are busy people. Mm-hmm. And so typically, uh, doing the retail product projects is not always at the top of their list of tasks that yeah. they have to do for that day. For sure. And, you know, we all know everything else that goes around uh, running mm-hmm. any business, but especially a restaurant during COVID, uh, staffing issues being what they are. Um, it's just so many things that can sort of delay that process. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a, um, it is a stressful time, especially if you're making decisions to go out onto the retail shelf before purely financial reasons to keep income, you know, generating. And, uh, and I can imagine that, yeah, setting the time aside that's required to do this properly would be quite hard to etch out unless you, you know, you block it out on your calendar. And the one thing I'll say is that going, going through this process and having professional packaging uh, mm. for your products does go a long way when it's time oh, to show that yep. to the buyers mm-hmm. and and time to start getting that product onto the retail shelves. Buyers yep. generally are not interested in your concept. They're generally mm-hmm. interested in your product. And they want to see what, what does it look like? Yeah. What does it taste like? That's more of a due diligence thing. Most mm-hmm. buyers that I know don't inject as much of their own personal opinion. Like would I, you know, is this a, a food item that I like? The, the yeah. attitude is more, is this a food item that I can sell off my shelf that other mm-hmm. people will like? Um, and having that process complete, having an understanding of your costs and mm-hmm. an understanding of what your margins are going to be and mm-hmm. what the retailer's margin is going to be. Uh, yeah. Those elements go a long way to getting that product onto the store shelves. And then the, and then the work starts of getting it off of the store shelves and yeah, uh, and, hustling. Yeah. 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 So much to be done, mate. And I guess that's where the value in working with a, uh, with somebody like you is because you've got all of this squared away and you can speed up the process and take a lot of, um, you know, somebody's plate. So I'm so glad that we had this conversation today. Is there anything that we've missed that's critical? Uh, no, I think that, you know, anything else is kind of, uh, unique to a case by case basis. Yeah. So, yep, yep. Uh, you know, there, there is definitely more to it, but that's, that's a big part of what I do is kind of demystifying that process and highlighting, uh, you know, the, the line items that need to be taken care of, you know, before we can sort of wrap it. That's great, mate. Hey, listen, there's one question that I ask all of my guests before the end of a podcast. If we were to fast forward a year from now and you could say to me that you'd had your best year ever, what is it specifically that you will have accomplished? Uh, 
Oh, that, that, that's a really great question. You know, I, I, I'd like to see my clients' products on the store shelves when I, yeah. go, when I go through the grocery stores. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a long road from restaurant to uh, national distribution. Yeah, uh, yeah. But there are plenty of independent grocers in the GVRD. And I absolutely love going through the grocery stores and saying, hey, well, I worked on that product. It's yeah, awesome, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and, and, and so, yeah. you know, seeing that more and more <clears throat> and, and having that be, um common mm. that that, yep. that that's sort of the sign of success for me dude I, I get the same um i get the same feeling out of you know being in the supermarket and seeing pra- uh, brands that i've worked with as well and and also speaking to people on this podcast too i'm like oh i've spoken to the owner of that business and having a really good understanding of the product and you know the mechanics of the business model that they're working with it's it's awesome so yeah, yeah i totally i totally understand what you're talking about there the, the last time i was at food pack actually there was a, a bunch of samples uh on that wall across from the yeah. reception desk I said hey yeah i worked on that I worked on yeah. that and there's there about four, <laughs> four or five there that I participated in. And yeah. uh, yeah, even that felt good. And then, and yeah. then my, my mother uh, helps a lot with the translations. Oh, and cool. so she really likes to see that sort of thing as well. She's retired and, and um, you know, enjoys doing that, that sort of thing. So it gives her a sort of a sense of, I don't know, notoriety is not the right word, but you know, a feeling that other people are seeing the work that she's done as well. It's kind of cool. You got her on a retainer or you pay her by the word? Uh, I'd rather not discuss that. <laughs> I'm kidding, mate. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. It's it, yeah. uh, you know a lot of it is to occupy her time. Like I said, yeah, she's retired. Yeah, yeah. You know she's she's stuck in the house with COVID, <laughs> or not with COVID, but due to yeah, COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. And so um, you know it's it's they're fun projects for her to work on. Hundred yeah. percent. Hey, listen, Roger. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks. Uh, if anybody listening would like to get in touch with you and uh, potentially start some work, what's the best way to get it around? Uh, I can get. Uh, emails at rlrconsulting at outlook.com. Yep. And uh, that's probably the best way to do it. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time, Matt. It's very much appreciated. Thanks, Hayden. You're welcome. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions from today's episode or would like to know more about what I can do to help you achieve your packaging vision, you can reach me directly at Hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com. You could DM me on Instagram at the Pack Heavy Podcast, or we could also connect on LinkedIn and start a conversation there. I'll see you next week.